Welcome to another episode of Passing Judgment. This is a special episode. We're going to talk about a recent Supreme Court case that the court just decided dealing with the Electoral College and whether or not members of the Electoral College, these electors, can go rogue and vote for a candidate other than the one chosen by the voters of the state they represent. To help me today, back by popular demand, we have our producer, Joe Armstrong, also the man behind the music, also the man behind his own podcast, Independence Day. Welcome back, Joe. Hello, Jessica. Thank you once again for having me along for this ride. As I understand, this Supreme Court case is about something we keep hearing a lot about, which is called faithless electors. Now, I know what a faithless husband is. I know what faithlessness is in general, but how does that apply to the Supreme Court? Yes, I was waiting for us to talk about losing faith, particularly now in the middle of a a pandemic that is being bungled beyond repair, perhaps. But today is a lighter topic dealing with faithless electors. And so what that means is when we actually vote in November, we're not voting for the president of the United States directly. Instead, we're voting for a slate of electors who will represent our state. And then about six weeks later, they gather, probably virtually this time around, And they cast their ballots for the president. That's why you can have a situation where the person who wins the national popular vote, meaning the person who gets the most votes on election day, is not necessarily the person who wins the presidential election. For example, in our last election, Hillary Clinton got nearly three million more votes, raw votes, than the winner, Mr. Trump. But she still managed to lose the election due to the Electoral College. Exactly. And this happened also in 2000 with respect to then Vice President Al Gore and George W. Bush. And so think about how different presidential elections are as a result of having this system, this electoral college. What it means is that there are 538 electoral votes. You need 270 to win. And as a result, presidential candidates spend the vast, vast majority of their time in these so-called swing states, the states that could go either way for either candidate and the states that matter. And not just in the swing states, but for the swing voters in those swing states. And we're talking to you, of course, from California, where in the general election, people essentially ignore us because we're not a swing state. There aren't enough swing voters. And we can both kind of tick off those five to six states every election that typically can determine the winner of the presidential race. And why this extra layer between the popular vote and the Electoral College? Why do we even have it? So this goes back to the founding fathers, the beginning of our country. And the Electoral College was essentially a compromise. And it was put in place by people, in part, who were worried about us, meaning the voters, directly electing the president. And they were worried about an unruly mob or an uneducated group. And specifically, they were worried that we might elect someone who was unqualified, who was a demagogue. And they said, (laughs) imagine that. I was waiting for you to say that. And so they said, you need a filter. You need a safety valve. You need a group that could save you from yourselves. And that group 
will be the Electoral College, this group of elder statesmen at the time, not stateswomen. And they would basically act as a filter and they could look at the votes of the people and essentially ensure that we weren't going to pick someone who would pose an existential threat to our country. Again, imagine that. And it also helps certain states at the expense of others. So another pro or con, depending on where you live, is that the Electoral College gives outsized power to small states, which tend to be uh, more conservative, less diverse states. Yeah. So you have a state like Wyoming, which has very few people. Are there, I'm I'm not sure if I'm exactly right in my math here, are there fewer people in Wyoming than there are in Los Angeles County? I think probably by a long shot. So it's, they're kind of blowing the curve essentially because they have fewer electors than California has, but that gives them a weighted average, correct? Am I thinking about this correctly? That's exactly right. So how does your state figure out how many electors you get? You add up all your federal representatives. So you add up all your members of Congress plus two, right? Your two federal senators. And so when it comes to California, we have 53 members of Congress at our two federal senators. That's 55 more electors than any other state. You would think we really matter, but for reasons that we've talked about, because we're not a swing state, we really don't all that much. And then if you look at Wyoming, where I believe they have about 590,000 residents, they have three electors, which means if your cousin is voting on election day in Wyoming, they have about 3.6 to 3.7 times the voting power, meaning that it takes about 3.6 fewer people to pick an elector than it does in California. So let's tie this into the Supreme Court. Something happened very, very recently that has to do with something called loyalty laws. And how does it apply to these electors? And why was that even before the Supreme Court? Yes. So a majority of states, including the District of Columbia, have these so-called loyalty laws. And these are state laws that say, if you're a member of the Electoral College, then you have to vote according to the popular vote of the state you represent. And if you don't, we can punish you by fining you or by removing you and somebody who will vote according to how the popular vote of the state you represent voted will replace you. So the question before the Supreme Court, they actually asked two questions that got at this issue from basically two different sides. So the first question was, do electors have a right to go rogue? Do electors have a right to say, California, I know you have a loyalty law, but I would prefer to pick, you know, fill in the blank candidate. It doesn't have to be somebody who even ran in the presidential election. And did I hear that Frodo Baggins name came up during the deliberations about this? You do, because I barely know any pop culture. Do you want to explain for our listeners, who all know, I'm the only listener who had uh, to look it up. For all the Jessica Levinsons of the world, Frodo Baggins is the protagonist in a book by uh, Tolkien, uh, the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit guy from England back in the day. There were a bunch of wildly popular movies made about that in the last decade or so. He's revered in certain circles. Is this where I admit that I haven't seen every Star Wars movie or... Would that be the end of the podcast? Would we just lose all our listeners? Um, I'm not sure I can be seen with you in public okay. again, Jessica. We, let's move on. Fair enough. So first question, do the individual electors have the right to say, 
I want to vote for who I want to vote for. I have some individual right. I have some agency. I'm not just a rubber stamp. Second question basically gets at the same issue from the other side, which is to say, do states have the power to tell these electors, you do not get to exercise discretion. You do not get to exercise agency. You have to vote according to the popular vote of the state that you represent. And the court, in a unanimous decision, said states do have this power. It is okay for states to punish faithless electors. Yeah, now going into this, not all states had those loyalty laws, correct? That wasn't a consistent thing across the 50 states? Exactly. And it's not a consistent thing now. I believe it's 32 states in the District of Columbia that have these laws. Now, what's important to remember is that electors do not go rogue very often. Electors tend to be party loyalists, and they are elected because everybody's essentially banking on the fact that they will fulfill their duty, and they'll vote for whoever the state votes for. So this is actually a very rare circumstance. But if you're looking at what could be a nail-biter of a presidential election, particularly with respect to the Electoral College, this is a case that might have big consequences. Yeah. You know, we talk a lot about the fact that this election season is already shaping up to be fairly contentious. And in some ways, it seems as if the election season never ended. But anyway, let's get back to the meat of this thing. So what was the vote of, of the nine justices? How did they rule on this? They voted unanimously. And they said that these laws are permissible. We had a great opinion uh, by Justice Kagan, Justice Elena Kagan, who was appointed by President Obama. The reason I say great is because it was so fantastically readable. If there's one thing that Supreme Court decisions should be, it's for the public. I mean, the Supreme Court could just decide to all raise their hands, take a picture and call it a day. They don't have to write opinions. These opinions are for us, and they're explaining themselves. And Justice Kagan has this great aside where she's talking about the Electoral College, and then she has this parenthetical, and she says, sounds like the TV show Veep, doesn't it? And as an aside here, I have actually watched the TV show Veep. And she's just so fantastically clear and accessible. And in that way, it was a pleasure to read the opinion. And what she said is, I'm looking at the Constitution. I'm looking at the practice, meaning I'm looking at how we have behaved since the founding of our country. And this is this, meaning these loyalty laws are permissible. Now, is a unanimous ruling fairly rare in this particular court? Or is that something that happens a lot? I mean, I'm I do have my Supreme Court justice trading cards, but the stats only go through last season. So I don't know. (laughs) I don't know where we stand right now. So it's rare for the cases that you and I would talk about on a podcast, meaning the big cases that get news coverage typically are the five to four, where we're all watching and waiting. But it's not actually that rare when it comes to the, the majority of the cases that the court talks about, which are more arcane cases that don't have these huge implications for who might win the next presidential election. I think that the last and a big unanimous ruling actually dealt with the Bridgegate case. And that, of Mm. course, was a fairly contentious question. So it's not like it happens once every blue moon. 
Okay, I see. Now, unanimous decision. Okay, somewhat rare, but not entirely. But what does this specific unanimous decision tell us about what the Supreme Court is thinking right now? I think it tells us that the Supreme Court is really excited to not throw any more gasoline on what already could be a dumpster fire of an election, so to speak. So imagine the court had gone the other way. Imagine that the court had said electors can be faithless. Then the day after we all vote, you could envision a scenario where there's just enormous lobbying and pressure on these electors where people are saying, you have to vote for this candidate, you have to save the country, you have to do this, where you're potentially opening electors up to bribery, corruption, and the process just looks like it's one filled with nothing but chaos. And it looks like, frankly, this is not a government of the people that we're not doing even indirect electing, and that it's really all just left up to these electors. And I think that they wanted to avoid that particular nightmare scenario. We have enough nightmare scenarios to worry about for the presidential election without uh, this particular one. Yeah, a presidential election year, I mean, it seems to be complicated enough as it is without this extra layer on top of it. And there are plenty, and I hope that we'll talk about this, there are plenty of nightmare scenarios dealing with election administration. And this is why the prayer of basically every county registrar, every state secretary of state is some version of please let this election not be close because you don't want to have another hanging Chad, which is a reference to Bush v. Gore. You don't want to have another hanging Chad moment in this election. And I certainly hope that everyone will subscribe to our podcast so that they can ride along with us as we discuss all these issues throughout this contentious election season, hopefully the least amount of contentiousness as we can muster in our society these days. Now, but before we go, because we're talking about the election, what does this decision, like how does this apply on the ground to this election that we are in the midst of right now? So this may not actually change the election too much in the sense that, again, the thing to remember is electors typically do not go rogue, that that's a rare situation. So one could argue that this decision actually just solidifies the status quo, which is that electors have to vote for whoever the state they represent voted for. Uh, It does mean that we lack some flexibility when it comes to the Electoral College. And that's why I think this could actually embolden those who are in favor of a national popular vote, meaning that we abolish the Electoral College or we significantly reduce its power and we say that whoever gets the most votes on Election Day is a person who becomes president. And so this ruling in making the Electoral College even more rigid in reducing any flexibility that might be associated with the Electoral College, I think will actually push people to think more about the national popular vote. It seems so simple, the popular vote, such an elegant and uh, non-contentious, perhaps, way to look at electing a president. But the founding fathers seemed to know what they were doing in certain circumstances, many, many circumstances. And what was that phrase you used a second ago, uh, solidifying the status quo? I think that's such an interesting way to think about the Supreme Court and how they deal with these kinds of things. So uh, what happens now? Where do we go from here? Well, what happens now is that we, you know, the people who are pushing for the national popular vote continue trying to 
get this into our consciousness. Look, election administration issues and the Electoral College tend to be things that most people care about sometime around the Monday before Election Day, and then they stop caring about it the Wednesday after we vote on that Tuesday. But it is important for us to think about how drastically the Electoral College changes presidential elections. Imagine that we said whoever gets the most votes on Election Day wins. Then you have candidates who are largely ignoring the smaller states, who are ignoring the less populous areas. And then we would have candidates spending an enormous amount of time in California, in highly populated cities and counties throughout the nation. Yeah, Texas, Florida, Illinois, New York, etc. Exactly. And that could also arguably get a bit more expensive because you can't engage in retail politics in those more populated areas. You have to have ad buys. And then we have an issue of, well, does this just exacerbate the problem of money in politics? So what I would say to people is I think there are plenty of policy problems behind the Electoral College. I think there are plenty of reasons why it doesn't make sense to essentially prize these small states to give voters in small states so much more power than voters in big states. But there's not a clean answer. There still are downsides to completely abolishing the Electoral College. And one thing I want to emphasize is that the reason I think we might have had some unanimity with the Supreme Court is it's not always clear who would benefit from electors going rogue. And I think that's how you get nine members of the Supreme Court to agree. And I think that shows how complicated these issues are and that it doesn't break clearly along partisan lines. So that's a long way of saying, where do we go from here? The Electoral College is here to stay for the short term, very likely for the midterm, maybe not for the long term, but it's going to take an enormous amount of political will to change that. And as you and I have talked about, most people are really busy focused on other things right now. Yeah, and the American experiment rolls on. And if you'll excuse me, I have to pack my things because I'm moving to Wyoming. <laughs> we'll still be able to do this, right? We'll just connect remotely. Through the power of technology. Perfect. And you can stop by the next time you're in Cheyenne. Um, as you know, I'm not much of a traveler, particularly during a pandemic, but I appreciate the invitation. Will you remind us how we can virtually visit you, how we can find your podcast? I kid, I kid. Of course, you can always find me at Indepday, I-N-D-E-P-D-A-Y. It's Indepday.com, also the same thing on Instagram and Twitter, etc. Pretty easy to find. And people can find you now popping up for special editions of the Passing Judgment podcast. We are so grateful for all the people who have already listened, subscribed, rated, written reviews. And we hope that you will listen to us wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica. You can find the Passing Judgment podcast on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod, on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod. And we hope to see you next time. Thank you, producer Joe Armstrong. Thank you, awesome host Jessica Levinson. We'll thank you everybody for listening. We'll talk to you next time.